Well, now let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. As we have moved through this book, it's been a couple weeks, uh, just to remind you a common theme and a big reason why Peter wrote this book uh, was to deal with the reality that Christians who were living the Christian life uh, were suffering in the world. And the same is true for us. As, as we decide to devote our lives to following Jesus, it will be hard and we will suffer. And we can all understand the temptation that comes with suffering for the sake of Christ. Sometimes we have questions that arise, questions like, why would God allow this to happen? Is all this suffering, is it really worth it? How much longer must I endure? Now, we have to be honest with ourselves. There, there is not a lot at stake for us from a physical harm standpoint, uh, being Christians in America. At, at least as we compare our situation to the audience that Peter was speaking to. Generally speaking, most of our lives are not in danger physically from following after Christ. We aren't being threatened with death to follow Jesus. However, what I do see is a great temptation to just blend in with the culture around us. To, to really not stand out because it is so easy to kind of claim Christian to be a Christian to some certain level. And, you know, I, I just have a question. I wonder how many people just blend in because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to stick out. Here is what is true for us, though. We don't know what the future holds for us. I do believe there is an argument to be made that things here aren't getting any better for Christians. In fact, lines are being drawn on where you stand on certain issues. And, and it's no surprise to you, we've seen churches fold to the pressure of it all, sacrifice biblical truth, uh, all for the glory of cultural acceptance. I, I do believe things are going to get worse for believers. And to a certain degree, I believe this will strengthen the church. When the cost is higher to follow Jesus, people take more time to contemplate whether or not they're willing to take on this sacrifice. This is the case for, with Peter's audience, there was a high cost in living for Christ. They were facing persecution, and this left some of them concerned and scared. And so this is why we have First Peter, in order to help believers suffer well. And I think there's great truths for us this morning. Our passage this morning continues with the hope that believers have in their suffering. Here's our title today. We're going to talk about our victorious Savior. Our victorious Savior. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. Uh, let me read that for us now. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, 
eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the hope that we have in life and death. We are not our own, but we belong to you. And God, I thank you for the victory that you have brought, that we can take part in, that we can celebrate in, that we can join in on. And Lord, we just confess that we need it. There's suffering here on this earth because of following after you. There's suffering because of our own sin. There's suffering because of the sins of others. There's suffering because of the temptation that comes from the enemy. And God, sometimes we find ourselves wondering, how long must we continue to suffer? How long must we continue to endure? And God, so we just, we just ask you for your help this morning. God, that we would understand how victorious that you are over our greatest problem. God, that we would find joy in life, even in the midst of all that we have to go through. God, make us hopeful in you. Lord, we have so much reason, so much to celebrate because of Christ. And so, Lord, turn our hearts and our affections to you this morning. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at verse 18 here, uh, we see a conjunction word to start off, for. So this is jumping back to what was previously said. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. First of all, we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer for doing good. This is, this is what Peter has been talking about. Like, don't be surprised. This is going to come your way for following after Jesus because you're living in a hostile place. Like, uh, evil is running around. The, the devil is seeking someone to devour. And so you're going to suffer because you're a believer. But don't let your suffering be because of your own sinfulness. The reality is God has suffering in store for those who do good. Like this is his plan to draw us near to him. The great encouragement that we get then in verse 18 is that this is what happened to our Lord Jesus. He suffered as well for doing good. I, I feel like I mentioned this I, like a broken record somewhat, but what I love so much about Jesus is that he doesn't ask us and call us to do something that he himself wasn't willing to do. Jesus didn't just stay in heaven and kind of cast out directions from a place of ease and comfort. No, he, he stepped into to our world, born in humble circumstances. And Jesus, our Lord, suffered for doing good. And so this morning, what I want to use the rest of our time to discuss are three things that Jesus is victorious over. Three things that Jesus is victorious over. Over Here's the first thing. Jesus is victorious over sin. Jesus is victorious over sin. Look again at verse 18. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, we, that he might bring us to God. This verse is packed with great biblical truth. So let's just break it down phrase by phrase here. First of all, we see that Jesus suffered once. The word suffered isn't just referring to the pain he endured, but also to the fact that he died for sin. And here's what's drastically different between his suffering for sin versus our suffering for sin. He only suffered once. That's it. Jesus didn't have a lifelong struggle with sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't have sin placed upon him until he was hanging on the cross. At that point he paid for the price of every sin that every believer would ever commit. One time, he became sin, and he died for it. Up to that point in history, year after year after year, the priests had to make what for sin? Sacrifices. And it was never enough. Because continually, year after year, they had to keep making them until Jesus came and paid the ultimate sacrifice one time for sin. Once and for all. This would have been a huge encouragement to these early believers as well as it should be to us. All around us we see sin waging war in in our own lives, in the lives around us. Our own sinfulness weighs us down. The sinfulness of others weighs us down. These Christians that Peter wrote to were being persecuted because of the sinfulness of other men. But the hope that we have in Christ is that Jesus paid the price for sin. Believer, this morning, if you've truly repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ, your sins have been taken care of. And find hope in this, those who persecute you, either they will come to repentance and be covered by the blood of Christ, or they will one day pay an eternal price for their sin in the lake of fire. But believer, just again, know this, Christ died once, and it was enough to cover the sins of every person who would ever believe. Therefore, our greatest problem is done away with. I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of problems going on right now in life. A lot of issues that are messing with our house, family, but yet none of those things are our ultimate problem. And so whether or not they get resolved fully doesn't matter because my greatest problem has been taken care of on the cross. Jesus has paid the price for sin. Here's another deep biblical truth that we see here in verse 18. Jesus, the righteous, died for us, the unrighteous. It's great enough to know that he never sinned once 
But it's a miracle that he was willing to die for unworthy sinners. He took the place of those who deserved the death that he endured. You see, Jesus, because he never sinned, he was 100% pure. He was without sin, completely righteous before God. None of us can claim that on our own. None of us even come close in our own flesh of living righteous lives. In fact, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are unrighteous. Listen, this isn't like school. You know how you can, we got a, we got a couple teachers in the room. You can pass your class in school by getting a C minus, right? You pass. You go to the next grade. There's no, there's no C minus in righteousness. You don't like just squeeze by in righteousness to be able to get to heaven. You're either declared righteous or you're not righteous. And we all enter this world as sinners separated, and yet the righteous became unrighteous so that he might make the unrighteous righteous. The only way one can be declared righteous is if someone intervenes on our behalf. And this is what Christ has done for you. Jesus suffered once for sin. He, the righteous, died for the unrighteous. And this had to happen in order for the next phrase to be true for us. That Jesus might bring us to God. Why did he die once for sin? The righteous for the unrighteous? So that he might bring us to God. You see, one cannot be stained with sin and enter into the presence of holy God. Only perfection can enter. Jesus took our place, made us righteous. Why? In order to bring us to God. Listen, at the heart of the gospel is substitution. Jesus became our substitute so that we might draw near to the Father. And so now, for those who have repented of their sins, God looks at us as if we've never sinned. Because when he sees us, he now sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the perfection of his Son that's been handed down to those who have repented of sin and placed their faith in him. And God is quick to welcome those who have been cleansed by the blood of his Son. What great hope we have in Christ this morning, believer. We have a substitute. Yes, we still deal with sin here on this side of heaven, but we have been brought near to God by Christ. You know, as I was looking at this passage and praying over it, 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 it brought me to a question. What are you most grateful for? For in light of Jesus dying for your sins. I mean, just ponder that. Maybe even write down a few things. What are you most grateful for in light of Jesus dying for your sins? In all that Jesus accomplished for us, what brings you the most delight? Is it forgiveness? The fact that your slate has been wiped clean? Is it an eternity in heaven where there will be no more suffering and all the issues that you've had to deal with now one day will be no more? Is that what brings you 
the greatest delight? Is it that you are now declared holy? You know, I, I think one major marker of a true believer is that your greatest joy in salvation is the fact that you are brought near to God the Father. That because of the righteousness of Christ, because of his death, we can have a relationship with God Almighty. We can walk with him day by day, a God who will never leave you or forsake you. Not by, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have been forsaken by those others in your life? How many of you have had people walk away from you? I mean, maybe it's even deserved. Maybe you did something foolish. And here's the reality for us. God never leaves or forsakes his people. Even though our sins are all against him. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. And yet, we can walk with God daily. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to us. Come what may on this earth, may the joy of the Lord be our strength. May God be our delight. Above all the thing, other things that salvation bring, may our greatest delight be that we get to have a relationship with the Father. Think, think of it from this perspective. What, what is the most important relationship in your life? Like human speaking, not not relationship with God, but humanly speaking, what is the greatest relationship that you have right now? What's the most important? Now, have, has there ever been conflict there? Have you ever wronged that person? Or has there ever been anything that's come between you? Now think about this. What brings you the most joy when that person forgives you? Is it that your, your sin has been overlooked? Is it that you aren't defined by that sin anymore? I know for me, my greatest relationship is my wife, and my greatest joy when there is conflict is when there is restoration, when I have her back, when I have her heart, when the communication is open and we're not allowing our sin to come between us, and there's good fellowship and union. That's my greatest joy, and this should be the same for us with God, not that he no longer judges us according to our sin, but the fact that he wants a relationship, that we can have a relationship with him. I pray that that would be our great treasure, Christ. A relationship with God the Father, we've been brought to him. Jesus is victorious over sin. Look again at verse 18, the end of it. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, these are some very confusing verses, and I, I'm, I would say I'm less confused, but I'm still confused. I'm just going to be honest right now. First of all, who are the spirits in prison in which Jesus went and proclaimed to? <laughs> Here's what Martin Luther said about this verse. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament 
so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So to that, I say amen. Let me just give you a few thoughts here, maybe a few options to what this verse may be referring to. And, and these are not my own thoughts. These, uh, Thomas Schreiner uh, gave these thoughts. Number one, it could be pre uh, Christ preaching through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. That could be one thing. We see here later uh, in verse 20, we see Peter bringing up Noah and the ark. So it could be, you know, all these people rejected what Noah was doing. Is it referring to Christ preaching through Noah? Repent. And they mocked him, you know, they mocked Noah and his family during that time. That's one option. Here's another option. Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. To be honest, I feel like that's the least likely of the three. And then uh, here's a third one he offers. The text describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil angels. So as, as I study through this, I'm going to just acknowledge right up front, I don't fully know what Peter's talking about. The first and third one seem most likely. So the first one, again, was Christ preaching through Noah to those who live with, while Noah was building the ark. Because we, we see he goes into the, to the talking about Noah. And the third one, the text describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil angels. You, you look at verse 22 and we see that. We see that Christ has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So... Here, here's what I take away from all of that. Here, here's where I see Jesus victorious over. Jesus is victorious over evil. Jesus is victorious over evil. You know, I, I believe that the saints of old have a better understanding of the spiritual warfare around us than we do. There are definitely extremes that I see in our world today. First of all, there are, there are some people who believe that Satan is behind every stone, He's everywhere, and everything is, he's to blame. We blame the devil for everything. You know, after eating a box of Christmas tree snacks, uh, we want to say, get behind me, Satan, as if Satan was the one who pulled the box into your hand and made you buy it and made you eat it all, as if you had no desire for it whatsoever. In that case, our flesh, I believe, is our greatest enemy. Our own desires waging war within us. Lead us astray. It's not like you were sitting there minding your own business when the sugar jumps into your hand out of nowhere. That's, that's not the way it works. So I believe it's, a, it's dangerous to blame evil forces for everything without taking accountability for our own flesh. Our greatest problem is not the devil. It's the sin that dwells within each of us. Still... There is another extreme that people hold to. Many want to minimize it, minimize the spiritual warfare, and, and make little deal of it. As if Satan is nothing anymore, and everything, we make our own choices. Now, I think there's a danger on falling off this side of the saddle as well. Just consider, for instance, abortion. Oftentimes, we just look at it and get angry and call it the people who are standing for it and as ignorant and foolish. But I, I believe abortion is a major spiritual battle. And Ephesians reminds us the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the evil forces around us stirring up 
trouble. I mean, think about through scripture some major times where the enemy tried to kill a specific newborn in the Bible. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1 for a moment. Exodus chapter 1. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, if you've started the reading plan at all, you've probably made it at least through Exodus and you know what happens in the first chapter. Starting in verse 15, but let me just set it up for you. And so in Exodus here, uh, you know the Israelites came to Egypt because of a famine. Joseph brought his family, Jacob and all his sons there. And this is 400 years since they moved to Exodus, since they passed, moved to Exodus. The Israelites had grown to a massive amount of people, some estimate over a million people. And the Egyptians started noticing this, all the, all the Israelites that were there, and they got scared. And so they enslaved them and worked them hard. And then the king of Egypt gave them these orders, gave these orders in Exodus 1, starting in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. This is satanic. This is the work of the devil. We must understand we are in a spiritual warfare. We also know that a similar thing happened around the birth of Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you're familiar at all with the Gospels, you you know of this as well. Matthew 2, starting in verse 16. Herod, Herod was a very evil man. When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, see the wise men, he said, hey, tell me where the king is so I can go worship him, which was not Herod's motive at all. He's like, who is this rival of mine? I will not have a rival. And so he's angry. The wise men didn't come back to him. So Herod became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This, this. Is a satanic attack. This is the work of the devil. And we must understand, believer, that there is a spiritual war that is going around. The enemy hates new life. This is the reason why abortion is such a hot topic. And have you seen those who stand for it, how they fight it? 
I mean, there's an evilness even in when you see that. But listen, man is not the enemy here. It's the, it's the devil. It's the, it's the, he's like a lion seeking someone to kill and destroy. There is a real spiritual realm. Now listen, this can be very frightening. I mean, who, who wants to think about demons lurking around and stirring up trouble? I remember a guy who came to a conservative Baptist church I was a part of as a kid. And he spoke about the evils all around and rock music. And I went home and I didn't listen to a single music for years. <laughs> Just joking a little bit. But I was scared. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to let the devil in by letting this song in. But, but here's, here's the reality. The evil forces are real. But believer, we have great hope in this. Jesus has conquered the evil forces. Again, verse 22 let me remind you of what it says. God, Jesus has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. We have no reason to fear as believers. We have great hope in Christ who is victorious over evil. No doubt this would have been comforting to the people of Peter's time. They were experiencing evil by people killing believers in Jesus and persecuting them. Yet, they were secure in the hands of Christ. Listen, we don't know fully the evil trying to bring us down. But take heart, believer, Jesus reigns over it all. The scriptures say... Tell us, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can what? Take the soul and cast it into hell. That's the one that you should fear. Who is that? That is God. And if you've repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ, you are secure in him. No matter what man may do to you. No matter what the evil forces may try to tempt you with. We need to understand, believer, there is a spiritual war. But also know this, we are fighting a battle that Jesus has already won. Jesus is victorious over evil. Look at verse 20 again. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him here's the last thing Jesus is victorious in our salvation Jesus is victorious in our salvation here, Peter brings up Noah and the flood and compares it to baptism. Now, first of all, just take a moment to recall the story of Noah and his family. God came to him and, and told him to build a very large boat, as we know as the ark. This was in a place where uh, rain, they didn't see much rain, let alone enough rain to cause a flood, and so... Do you remember, though, why, why was God going to destroy the earth? It's because of the sinfulness of man. And yet Noah found favor in the eyes of God, so he spared Noah and his 
family. Now, we don't know how many people were alive in his day, but imagine the insults that he and his family would have received for building this huge, massive boat. Do you remember how long it took? Like 120 years. They, the water, rain has not been an issue here. So you can imagine the mockery that they endured because of this. All around, there was sinfulness in the hearts of man, and only eight people lived through the great flood. For 120 years, they built this enduring mockery from the people. Mocked much like the Christians in Peter's days, in Peter's day were mocked. They were the few. There's great hope in here. God saved the few. Listen, you may feel this morning like you're alone. You may feel like the few in the suffering that you endure in because of Christ and what Jesus wants you to know, what the Father wants you to know is you are not alone. God is a very present help in time of need. He came to rescue the few. So cling to him, believer. Cling to him. Now verse 21 brings up a, a, a major question. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, what, what is going on here? What does this mean? Is, is Peter suggesting that water baptism is what saves us? Now, there are actually people who do hold that view, that if you're not baptized, then you are not a believer. I, I don't believe that is the case at all. You, you look all throughout the, the scriptures in the New Testament, it's very clear we are saved by what? Grace alone, through faith alone, in who? Christ alone. Anything that gets added to salvation, anything, anybody wants to add anything to that salvation, cast it away. Peter's not referring to baptism saving us. Rather, he's calling to what baptism symbolizes. This is not talking about being cleansed by dirt, but rather because of Christ rescuing us. What does he give us? He gives us a clear conscience. He gives us a good conscience because now we no longer have to face the consequences of our sin eternally. He's rescued us through faith and repentance. And how does this salvation come? It doesn't come by being baptized. It doesn't come by anything we do. It comes, why? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, look, if Jesus was still in the grave today, then everything that he said would be untrue. You see, you, you can't look at Jesus and say he was a good man and then reject his divinity. Because he claims to be God. He's not a good man if he's not God. And so yet some people will say he was a good prophet and yet not declare him as God. That, that, that's not the way it works. Jesus is God and he rose from the grave proving that he is who he says he was. Because of what he did by defeating sin and rising from the grave, he descended into heaven and is reigning now at the right hand of God with all things subject to him. All things are under his feet. Christian, what a victorious Savior we 
Yes, we will face suffering in this world, but let the suffering be because of the good we are doing in the name of Christ. And remember this, believer, Christ also suffered for doing good. Yet in his suffering, Jesus proved to be victorious over sin. He suffered once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. And the sin that we still deal with will one day be done away with. Remember this, believer. Jesus is also victorious over evil. We have no reason to fear the principalities of this world. They've all been placed under his feet. And one day they will be done away with. Take heart in your great salvation. Jesus is victorious in our salvation. He not only died for your sin, but he rose from the grave where he is reigning. Believer, we are fighting a battle God has already won. To him be glory forever. So in a moment, we are going to sing about our victorious Savior. But let me just give you a few action steps that you can put into practice this week. Let me encourage you to memorize 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then in order to just prepare for what the Lord may have for us next week, spend some time reading chapter 4. We'll get into that. A question for you to ponder. Are you living victoriously in Christ? Perhaps this morning you find yourself struggling with, this, with sin. Like you, you, you just don't have it all together. Let me just remind you, none of us here have it together. None of us here is, has arrived at perfection in the sense of that we never struggle with sin. God looks at us that way, but we still struggle with the reality of sin. Remember, Jesus is victorious over it. One day, we'll, we'll be done away with that. And so cling to him. Remember that he's victorious over sin. Perhaps you're full of fear this morning. Is fear from God? Fear's not from God. Fear's from the devil. If you're afraid and fearful, this is, this is a reality uh, that you need to put your hope in God. Remember that God is victorious. Jesus is victorious over evil. We have nothing to fear. Perhaps maybe you're struggling with salvation. That's a question I can't answer for you. The Bible says that if you have, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. If you've trusted him for faith and salvation apart from works, Believe that Christ raised from the dead. The Bible says that you are saved. And if you've done that, then you have no longer to fear. Your, your security, your uh, salvation is secure in Christ. Live victoriously in Christ. And then really I think tied with that is let the joy of the Lord be your strength today. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Joy is not found in our circumstances. Joy is not found in your bank account being full. Joy is not found in your job going well. Joy is not found in human relationships flourishing. Joy must be found in Christ alone because what he has done for you, he has taken care of your greatest problem. 
Something I pray for us, my prayer for me this week. I've had to I've wrestled a lot with this. Like, Lord, let you, let the joy of the Lord be my strength this week. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll sing in response this morning. Father, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercies. God, you are incredibly faithful to us. And Lord, I, I just want to make a confession, Lord, that there are times when I, I'm overwhelmed just by myself, just by my own issues, my own struggles, life circumstances that I don't always have joy. Or if I do have joy, Lord, there are so many times where it's all based on circumstantial things, where everything else in life is lining up, and Lord, I'm expecting that to what leads to true joy. But Lord, joy can only be found in you. And so this morning, despite what any of us are facing right now, despite the circumstances that we are dealing with, despite the pain and suffering, Lord, would you bring joy because you have taken care of our greatest problem? Our health is not our greatest issue. Our financial burdens are not our greatest issue. Our relational struggles are not our greatest issue. It's our sin, and you paid for it on the cross. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. God, turn our hearts to you this morning. Turn our affections to you, and let there be a supernatural joy that comes because of what you've done for us. And the fact that we have peace because of the blood of Christ. Thank you, Father, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Give us great joy in you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to stand now as we sing in response.